The lecture has 12 parts. It's not a joke. Um, but before you run for the exits, they're, they're pretty short sections, some of them very short. Um, each part uh, is uh, prefaced by a quotation that I will uh, read. Sometimes those quotes show up in um, what I say after. Sometimes they just give a kind of context for um, what follows. So part one. What is meant by real can only be experienced. Nature is a problem for thinking. In one sense, it is a problem because it seems nearly impossible to think about it at all. This can be seen in a few lines from Moritz Schlick and Hans Reichenbach, both sophisticated interpreters of Einstein's relativity theories. In a series of lectures published under the title Philosophy of Nature, Schlick defines nature as, quote, all that is real insofar as it is determined in space and time, end quote. For Schlick, nothing more can be said about nature without establishing those determinations through empirical study. The philosopher has no role to play in inquiring about nature since only natural science can get at nature's determinations. Reichenbach clarifies the basis for the impossibility of thinking about nature. He writes, quote, the physical object cannot be determined by axioms and definitions. It is a thing of the real world, not an object of the logical world of mathematics, end quote. The work of the physicist, according to Reichenbach, and perhaps in contrast to a commonly held view, is not to go beneath sensible appearances and find what is really true of the physical world. Rather, the work of the physicist is only a lining up of mathematical formulations with empirical observations. There is, however, a role for thinking in this work. At its deepest level, the work of physics must ask the question, quote, by means of which principles will a coordination of equations to physical reality become unique, end quote. The discovery of such principles cannot be the work of empirical observation, nor have such principles ever been arrived at by means of induction. But according to Reichenbach, arriving at such principles provides no insight whatever into what nature really is. He writes, quote, there is no point in trying to define the physical object's existence more closely because what is meant by real can only be experienced. End quote. In its concrete reality, nature is forever cut off from thought. Nature is a problem for thinking because it is unthinkable. Part two. Nature confronts us as a riddle and a problem whose solution both attracts and repels us. Attracts us because spirit is presaged in nature. Repels us because nature seems an alien existence. Nature remains a problem even for those thinkers who do attempt to grapple with the question of what nature is and what is thinkable in nature. Thinkable should be heard here in contrast to knowable. Nature as a problem for thinking is not at odds with the work of natural science. Thinking has a different goal. Natural science seeks knowledge of what is encountered in experience. Thinking about nature is an attempt to comprehend what it is that the scientist studies. 
Such thinking is not content with the claim that nature is something determinately real, but otherwise unthinkable. Instead, such thinking will risk asking about the kinds of determinations that nature must have and about the basis for those determinations. Nevertheless, the philosophers that wish to think nature in this way seem to share a basic point of orientation with philosophers like Schlick and Reichenbach, namely that nature faces us as a kind of brute fact. It is there before us, but mute, provoking us to reckon with what it is. Part three. That nature is, it would be ridiculous to try to show, for it is clear that among the things that are, such things are many. It is not self-evident that nature has to be a problem in this way, either as the real that is beyond thought or as the, the real as a problem for thinking. It is not a problem of this sort, for instance, for Aristotle. That nature is, Aristotle says, is evident. It would be ridiculous to attempt a, de a demonstration that nature is, since this would be, quote, to show things that are clear by means of things that are unclear. End quote. Put this way, Aristotle's view seems to be in line with the perspectives we have already considered. Nature as a problem for thinking also does not demand proof of the existence of nature. Its existence is manifest. What nature is and whether it is thinkable are the questions. But here we have to recognize a profound difference in Aristotle's understanding of nature. When viewed as a problem for thinking, Nature is understood as the whole extended, sensible world. Schlick's all that is real insofar as it is determined in space and time captures this well. For Aristotle, however, nature is a principle that accounts for the motions that are intrinsic to a thing. A sensible world of ponderable entities is assumed in Aristotle's sense of the word, but that sensible world and the things that populate it are not nature. So when Aristotle says it is evident that nature is, he means it is evident that there are things that possess intrinsic principles of motion. The inquiry carried out in the physics is not an inquiry about what nature is. Rather, it is an attempt to think through what motion is in a way that is consistent with nature understood as a principle of motion. The inquiry into what nature is is carried out in the metaphysics for only an inquiry about principles can, in Aristotle's sense, be an, be an inquiry about nature. The crucial point is this. At no point does Aristotle treat nature as a brute fact, as simply what is real in space and time. There is a sensible extended world, but it shows itself as animated by indwelling principles, and as such, it shows itself as amenable to thought, the effort required to think nature along with Aristotle is tremendous, but at no point is nature a problem for thinking. Part four. The separation of subject and object is both real and illusory. It seems, perhaps, that when nature shows up as a problem, it does so because of our inclination to see the world in terms of subjects and objects. The subject-object distinction conforms to something we all seem to take for, for granted as a basic truth, that there are subjects 
thinking beings confronted with objects. This deeply rooted attitude finds expression in our readiness to regard matters of the mind as being in our heads and matters of reality as being out there, differing, differing in kind from what is in the mind. In this regard, the distinction between subjects and objects might just be called good common sense. But we need to only turn again to Aristotle to see that what seems like common sense might be an unrecognized prejudice. Aristotle certainly recognizes that there are thinking beings, but the principles of thought, even perhaps the activity of thinking altogether, are not to be found in our heads. It is not that we think and therefore there is thinking. No, there is thinking and we participate in it. And of course, Aristotle recognizes that there are discrete items in the world, those things we call objects. But it is not as objects in our sense, objects that stand opposite a subject, that such items figure in Aristotle's thinking. For the being of things is not grounded in their brute existence. The being of things demands that they be regarded in terms of form. And so thought and being never stand opposed as subject and object. Nature for Schlick and Reichenbach looks as if it could be construed as the subject-object distinction taken to its limit. Nature as the totality of what stands opposite the thinking subject. I cannot straight away recommend a return to Aristotle as a way to dissolve the problem of nature, for I'm not sure such a return is possible or desirable. I will also not attempt to explain how or why the subject-object distinction gained purchase in us. It may well be that there is something right about the distinction, provided we can think it through properly. In light of these considerations, our question becomes this. Is nature thinkable within the frame of subject and object? Part five. Since the moderns rejecting substantial forms and occult qualities have undertaken to reduce the phenomena of nature to mathematical laws, it has seemed best in this treatise to concentrate on mathematics as it relates to natural philosophy. The mechanical view of nature adopted by Newton in his, in his Principia, shared by many of his greatest contemporaries and adhered to by subsequent generations of natural scientists, necessitates the subject-object distinction. We see this necessity forcefully presented in Descartes' writings, where mind and matter are held to be separate substances. The principle of subjectivity, the principle grounding my existence as a thinking thing, is thought itself as a created substance. The truth of the world as encountered in sense perception is that it is a separate and distinct substance from me, as a thinking thing. And while mind is infused with the natural light of reason, the sensible world must be conceived as nothing but extension. Behind the play of so-called secondary qualities, color, taste, smell, pitch, texture, all those things that give the world its allure and vibrancy, behind this play is a gray world of shape, position, direction, and speed. Descartes' bold metaphysics yields a striking conception of our condition as thinking beings 
inhabiting a sensible world. But we end up in largely the same place by eschewing metaphysics and pursuing Newtonian science as our sole mode of thinking about nature. We end up there because even if the conception of bodies in motion provided by Newton's definitions and laws is only meant to provide a platform for studying natural phenomena and not to establish what nature is in itself, we cannot help but conceive of nature as mechanical while pursuing that study on Newton's terms. And despite its inclusion of inherent and impressed forces, Newton's external world is as devoid of mind as that of Descartes. Yet when we read Newton's book or directly study the world in light of its principles, we are thinking, and we think away the vibrant show of secondary qualities to get at the underlying machine. We may regard ourselves as prudent and sensible in setting aside substantial forms and occult qualities, but we delight in the satisfaction of mathematical proof and the sense that we have gained insight into the laws governing natural phenomena. The sober Newtonian is a secret Cartesian. Part six. Thoughts without content are empty. Intuitions without concepts are blind. Empiricism is inconsistent with Newtonian science. Newton tells us in the preface to the, the Principia that he is undertaking a rational mechanics. That is, quote, the science of the motions that result from any forces whatever and of the forces that are required for any motions whatever, end quote. Rational mechanics is not an observational science. It is a science of principles and of reasoning from those principles. Empiricism is incapable of explaining how such a science is possible. But the work of the Principia is not limited to rational mechanics. Indeed, it cannot be. The great accomplishment of the opening propositions of Book One of the, of the Principia is the establishment of how certain motions, bodies tracing a variety of shapes, can be linked to laws governing the variation of a centripetal force. Showing these correspondences, however, tells us nothing immediately about the world around us. The propositions only tell us that if a body is moving in a certain way, the forces acting on it must be varying according to a certain law. Rational mechanics cannot tell us how bodies are actually moving in the world. Pure reason cannot deduce the laws that are at work in the world. To find nature's laws, we must find out how it is in fact moving. And so the Cartesian dream of a science of nature without an empirical part runs aground here. What is needed is a way of thinking that can account for the possibility and necessity of both the pure and empirical parts of Newtonian science. We find such a way in Kant's transcendental idealism. Part seven. Thus we ourselves bring into the appearances that order and regularity in them that we call nature. The proofs of rational mechanics are not empty thoughts. Their content is provided by the mind's own capacities for receiving 
what is given in experience. This is true for mathematics generally. But without concepts, what is received in experience cannot be known by us. Cognition, and hence human consciousness altogether, must be conceptual all the way down. So goes Kant's thinking. And establishing these claims is the burden of the opening sections of the Critique of Pure Reason. The possibility of pure mathematics and rational mechanics turns out to be something of a sideshow in Kant's account. For the real problem for Kant is ordinary experience itself, of which Newtonian science is just a refined form. Consider these features of ordinary experience. The extended character of material objects, the varying intensities of sensible qualities, the apparent persistence of objects through time, and the coordination of the order of time with the relations of cause and effect. Kant's bold contention is that these features are not learned through experience, but are the very conditions for any experience. It is in this way that Kant's transcendental idealism becomes a philosophy of nature. How so? Kant regards nature as lawful and orderly, and not because we find it to be so, but because it must be so. It must be so because, Kant writes, quote, the conditions of the possibility of experience in general are at the same time the conditions of the possibility of the objects of experience. End quote. Another way of putting this is to say that the relations of subject and object is not immediate, but always mediated, mediated by our forms of intuition, pure concepts, and imagination. The sentence just quoted comes from the system of all principles of the pure understanding, in which Kant shows how intuition, understanding, and imagination work together to provide the quantitative, qualitative, substantial and causal backbone of all experience of objects. One crucial aspect of Kant's argument is that only the full slate of principles working together can provide the basis for experience of any object. This means, for instance, that even the simple apprehension of an object requires the concept of a cause, since only causality can secure an object, an objective order to time. That is, if the apprehension of an object is considered as happening at a determinate time, causality underpins that experience. This makes the system of principles the true heart of the transcendental analytic. And while the order of presentation requires Kant to consider the various mental faculties separately before elucidating their real use in concert, it would be a mistake to think that the system of principles can be generated deductively from first principles. The insight provided by the system of principles depends upon reflection about real experience, and so the transcendental analytic must be read backward as well as forward. Why is this seemingly arcane assertion important? It is important because it shows us that there is, on the one hand, no method of empirical observation by which to verify the truth of Kant's account of cognition, objectivity, and experience. On the other hand, it emphasizes that transcendental philosophy is not an apodictic science. Hence Kant's, endeavor is, hence, Kant's endeavor is an effort of thought that is both different from Newtonian science, which culminates in empirical observation, and from the efforts of Cartesianism to set philosophical thinking 
on indubitable grounds. Kant's thinking is not an attempt to build up knowledge on the basis of secure first principles. It is the work of drilling down into ordinary experience to comprehend its conditions. And in this way, Kant's undertaking is a thinking about nature, since in, since in illuminating the transcendental conditions of experience, he shows that they are nature's conditions as well. Part eight. It seems, therefore, that only a lawfulness without a law and a subjective harmony of the imagination with the understanding is compatible with the free lawfulness of the understanding and with the peculiarity of a judgment of taste. It might seem that Kant has pulled off a philosophical sleight of hand. While we were looking elsewhere, he transformed nature from something alien into something familiar. Put another way, it seems that Kant has moved the conditions for objectivity away from objects and into the subject. Kant won't deny this. But it might also seem, as it has to many, that Kant undermines his own aims and slides unwittingly from transcendental to subjective idealism. Whether this is the case, we would have to recognize that Kant is insistent that real experience is only possible if there is something, something not located in the subject, that affects us. The goal of the transcendental analytic is to establish the, that the grounds of what is objective in experience resides in the subject, not that experience is a spontaneous creation of the subject. Kant's account may, in the end, be one-sided, but this shouldn't blind us to whatever insight might be contained in that one side. And we would be too quick in our judgment of Kant's thinking if we made it based on the transcendental analytic alone. At the very least, we would have to consider the place of nature in Kant's account of judgments of taste, that is, in our experience of the beautiful. Such experiences are peculiar in at least two ways. Unlike most judgments, judgments of beauty do not seem to predicate a determinate concept of an object. That thing is beautiful is closer to, I like the way this tastes, than it is to, that thing is red. One might be persuaded about this if one agrees that there are no objective criteria by which to establish that something is beautiful. But unlike with subjective judgments of preference, we expect others will find things beautiful that we do. We know that we cannot compel someone to see something as beautiful. But we would find it strange to assert that the sentence, that thing is beautiful, is simply equivalent to, that thing is beautiful to me. In Kant's vocabulary, the peculiarity can be expressed this way. A judgment of beauty is both subjective and universal. Kant contends that the only way to explain this peculiarity is to locate the experience of beauty in a free play of our mental powers, powers that are a common possession among us. The experience is properly called a judgment because it is grounded in our faculties for judging, intuition, imagination, and understanding. But it must be regarded as, as a free play since while, understand, since while the understanding is engaged, it is engaged without the employment of any particular concept. The feeling of the beautiful 
is the feeling of our powers of cognition set into harmonious play, the harmony assumed in any determinate cognition without settling on any particular thought. What does this have to do with nature? Kant thinks that only products of nature, for instance, a flower, can be the occasion for a pure judgment of taste. All man-made products carry with them an overt or implicit element of conceptual determination, since all artifacts, at the very least, can be attributed to some purpose. Products of nature can also be objects of knowledge and hence conceptually determined. The flower can be studied and known in a variety of ways, but in its bare presentation to us, the product of nature is as something alien. Alien because whatever it is, it appears before us of its own accord. In this way, nature has shifted again back away from the determining capacities of the subject as an, element of, of, as an element of objective experience, the flower is swamped by subjective determinations. Its shape, color, persistence, and location in time all remain based in the subject. But, or so Kant claims, something about the flower, something in its form, something not determined by us, sets our mental powers into a free play. Here, then, is the remarkable thought about nature contained in Kant's account of beauty. Nature as a thing in itself, not as the realm of lawful appearances, is nevertheless in some way fitted to our mental powers. The alien and the familiar meet in concordance in this encounter, even though no knowledge can be yielded from it. Part 9. This content is the exposition of God as he is in his eternal essence before the creation of nature and a finite mind. Despite the emphasis placed on the subject in Kant's thinking and the exiling of things in themselves from knowledge and experience, Hegel contends that Kant's transcendental idealism remains, quote, overawed by the object. Both the byways and overall thrust of Kant's three critiques systematically deny our access to things in themselves, while nevertheless making experience, morality, and beauty depend on this unknowable beyond. Untethered from things in themselves, human thought spins in an empty void. For all his sympathy toward and admiration for Kant's transcendental turn, Hegel will criticize Kant's thinking from end to end as one-sided. This accusation cuts deeply. Take the opposition of subject and object. Hegel is prepared to praise Kant for establishing that the opposition of subject and object is illusory, that subject and object are only two necessary facets of experience. Hegel will also agree as well that experience must be regarded as a realm of appearances. There is no harsher critic of dogmatic metaphysics than Hegel. But Hegel thinks Kant has not gone far enough. To place the grounds of object objectivity in the subject alone and to leave, as it were, an undigested thing in itself in a remote beyond is to flirt again with metaphysics of the worst sort. In order to overcome the one-sidedness that engenders this threat, 
one must also overcome the opposition of subject and object from the side of the thing in itself. Or as one commentator has put it, quote, the truly Hegelian problem is not to penetrate from the phenomenal surface into things in themselves, but to explain how, within things, something akin to phenomena could have emerged, end quote. The first step in this undertaking is nothing less than, than the entire road of despair trodden in the phenomenology of spirit. This journey culminates in the knowledge that there is no opposition between consciousness and its object. In this way, the phenomenology is in accord with Kant's thinking. But unlike Kant, Hegel arrives at this conclusion without ever positing a role for things in themselves. Indeed, differently than in Kant's thinking, the concord between subject and object is accomplished only after all versions of a thing in itself are shown to contain contradictions. Achieving the insight that subject and object are not opposed is just the overcoming of all versions of that opposition. What then is left to do? Why does Hegel write a science of logic after the phenomenology? To use Hegel's own vocabulary, there is work left to do because the phenomenology itself is one-sided. It is one-sided because it overcomes the opposition of subject and object from the side of the subject. What is yet needed is the same overcoming, but from the side of the object. But what can this mean? Won't such an attempt dive headlong again into bad metaphysics? Part 10. The idea freely releases itself. By reason of this freedom, the form of its determinateness is also utterly free. The externality of space and time existing absolutely on its own account without the moment of subjectivity. Hegel is willing to regard the content of the logic as the exposition of God as he is in his eternal essence because he is comfortable being a heretic. His assertion is heretical not only because Hegel presumes to have written down God's thoughts, but also because those thoughts cannot be construed as inhering in a transcendent being. While the movement of thought contained in the logic is something actual, call it thought thinking itself or being fully comprehended, it stands to nature and human consciousness not as willful creator, but as transcendental ground. If metaphysics becomes dogmatic when it presumes to have direct insight into the truth of being, then Hegel steer, steers clear of this charge. The work of the phenomenology remains within the bounds of what appears to consciousness and the claims that consciousness makes about those appearances. Consciousness as such is marked by its own distinguishing of subject and object. So when the opposition of subject and object is overcome at the end of the phenomenology, this is, as it were, only a formal achievement. Absolute knowing has a history at this point, but no content. The content is explicated in the logic. But if we are tempted to see dogmatism creep in here, we have to recognize that Hegel insists that when thought begins to think itself, it still has no content. To think being simply is to think nothing. And while the phenomenology has given us permission to begin thinking about being without apology, the content of that thinking must accrue through a movement of thought. There is no immediate insight into being whatsoever. 
ordinary consciousness will still balk at such statements, since any talk of thinking about being will sound like metaphysical fancy. There is no easy way to dispel this suspicion. But what if one said that for Hegel, the concrete world of, in space and time of our sense experience is not included in the content of the logic, the discourse that claims to comprehend being altogether. This might at least obtain for us a brief reprieve from scorn, for if the concrete world around us is not being, then what is it? Hegel claims that the full sweep of thought contained in the logic exhausts what is thinkable about being, including the conditions of its intelligibility. The recognition of this completeness, together with the retention of everything encountered in the movement of thought, makes a complete whole. And yet, while this completeness is genuine, its form remains one-sided. The inwardness of thought thinking itself, while cut through with maximal difference, has no outward expression. Here we reach one of Hegel's strangest thoughts, but the one that makes his thinking about nature worth our time. The existence of external reality cannot be construed as something needed by being, since being is inwardly complete. Nevertheless, so Hegel says, the inwardness of thought, thinking itself, frees externality to be itself. We might say that thought allows for there to be something other than thought. This other is nature. Hegel writes, quote, externality constitutes the specific character in which nature, as nature, exists. Externality is the key to understanding what nature is. Part 11. Nature exhibits no freedom in its existence, but only necessity and contingency. As fundamentally external, nature is not only alien to us, it is alien to itself. And all that is truly intelligible in nature springs from the inherent intelligibility of being. But as the external other of being, nature is not inherently intelligible. And yet, it is thinkable. A contrast here will help us see our way through. We are familiar with thinking about concrete beings in terms of essence and appearance, where the external show of things is constituted by inward intelligible forms. But if we try to think of the content of the logic as the inward essence of nature, we will get it all wrong. Recall, on the one hand, that the inwardness of thought thinking itself, that is, being in its full determination, is not the inwardness of some other thing. It is complete in itself. Likewise, nature is not the external aspect of something inward. Nature is externality through and through. And so the forms of things that we encounter in nature must be regarded in three different ways. As comprehended philosophically, nature shows itself according to certain general forms, as matter in motion, as physically determinate and dynamic materials, as plant and animal life. These general forms and the specific forms that fall beneath them, however, are not sufficient to understand nature as thinkable on the one hand and nature as concretely existing 
on the other. As thinkable, nature's general forms borrow their intelligibility from the content of thought thinking itself. The concept of life, for instance, is a moment within the development of the thinking of being. The plant and animal organism are life manifested in the form of externality. In this way, thinking about nature requires a kind of double vision. Nature's general forms are thinkable if, while keeping one eye on them, we also keep another eye on the structure of intelligibility as such. Rather than thinking of nature's forms as the appearance of an intelligible essence, we can perhaps think of these forms as images of the intelligible, reflecting but not embodying the intelligible. But there is a third way in which we must grasp nature's forms, and here, I think, Hegel's conception of nature comes to fruition. For as a matter of concrete sensual reality, even nature's general forms cannot be found in existence. There is no concrete example of the plant or animal as such. There are only specific plants and animals. And while a diversity of kinds might be necessitated in principle by the concept of nature, the actually existing kinds have no ground either in being as intelligible or in nature's general forms. Nature as actually manifest to our senses is irreducibly contingent. This point deserves special emphasis for it means that nature's diversity and sensuous specificity is not capable of being comprehended by philosophical thought. Our comprehension of what nature is includes the insight that nature is not graspable in thought at this level because this is the level where nature manifests its inherent contingency. Hence, Hegel gives us a way to think what seemed unthinkable, nature in its bare and stubborn presence as object to our subjectivity. Part 12. Difference is what constitutes being. The world of the scientist is a world of facts, and the world itself is treated as a fact. Treating the world this way entails a theory of being. The theory goes like this. There are things, and they are what they are, and that has nothing to do with us. This sense of being animates G.E. Moore's 1903 essay, The Refutation of Idealism, a forceful attack on what had been the prevailing trend in British philosophy and one of the inaugural moments of what has come to be called analytic philosophy. I mention Moore's essay because his allegiance to a world-as-fact ontology seems to make it impossible for him to be able to grasp idealist thought. Moore's essay begins, quote, Modern idealism, if it asserts any general conclusion about the universe at all, asserts that it is spiritual, end quote. Moore's misunderstanding of idealism can be unfolded from this first sentence alone, since from the outset, Moore seems to treat the universe as a simple fact, something present that just is whatever it is. And I think it would be fair to say of Moore's mindset that the universe, as he conceives it, is equivalent to being. The universe is, and it is all that there is. For Kant and Hegel, there is a difference between the universe the totality of the manifest natural world, and being. 
This should not be understood as asserting that nature is part of being. This would not entail difference. Rather, nature must be thought in some way as different from being. This manifests itself in Hegel's thought in a particularly strong fashion. For not only is being itself unthinkable without difference, since being fully comprehended is equivalent to the comprehensive self-differentiation of being, but nature, as the domain of exteriority and contingency, is only thinkable in its difference from being. But it is just this difference that Hegel it is in just this difference that Hegel is able to account for what Moore seems to take at face value, that nature is the realm of the factual. Nature differs from being as fact differs from principle. Hegel thus comes to agree, in a way, with Reichenbach, that the real can only be experienced if we construe the real of Reichenbach's claim with Hegel's exteriority. Yet unlike Reichenbach's real, Hegel's nature in its difference from being, nevertheless reflects what is inherently intelligible in being. Nature must be known through experience, but is thinkable in principle. One final thought, for the assurance of this final statement should not go unqualified. The quote from Deleuze that was included in the description for this lecture speaks of a difference between empirical and absolute knowledge The phrase absolute knowledge is not typical of Deleuze's way of speaking, but we can make sense of the Hegelian language by noting that the quotation comes from a book review of a book about Hegel by Jean Hippolyte. Deleuze seems to think that Hippolyte gets Hegel right in ways that others have not. And part of that getting right bears on questions I have taken up tonight. Nevertheless, at the end of the review, Deleuze asks whether Hegel himself has gotten things right, whether Hegel can be followed in principle, whether contradiction can bear the work Hegel Hegel has asked of it. And this can serve as a reminder for us that searching for principles and searching for facts are not the same thing, and that thinking cannot be reduced to knowing. Thank you.